Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. In a world where very few people embrace their global identity and seek to understand their neighbors, cross-cultural expert Tayo Roxon is on a mission to bridge this divide. Each week, he'll open your mind with insights from some of the global minds in the world. Get ready, take some notes, and learn how to be the best you that you can be. Welcome everybody to another episode of As Told by Nomads, and today's guest is Lila Jana. So, the world's wealthiest countries have donated over $2 trillion in foreign aid to the world's poorest people. Yet, despite this, 2.8 billion people worldwide still struggle to survive every day. We need a better solution. In Give Work, Lila's new book, Give Work, Reversing Poverty One Job at a Time, social entrepreneur and founder of Samasource and Luxme, Lila contends that giving dignified, steady, fair wage work is the most effective way to eradicate global poverty. Lila is on a mission to eradicate poverty. She dismantles the current thinking on charity and the West view those most in need. She shows how traditional aid is broken and argues that the solution rests in progressive business models, weaving together private, public, and nonprofit sectors. Powered by Jana's um, own story, Give Work also puts faces on the people whose lives have been transformed through obtaining steady work and earned incomes. Welcome to the show. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for ha- having me. Pleasure is mine. Pleasure is mine. I'm, you know, I was reading your bio and I was thinking about, you know, your book and, you know, I, I've been talking to a few people about the work that you do. And I'm just curious as to when this idea got started. Walk me through when the seed was planted in you that you knew that this was something you wanted to work on. So my my dad and mom uh, grew up in India, and my dad went to Jesuit school for a lot of his life. And I think the Jesuits have um, have a really deep sense of social justice and morality, which he he passed on to me. So I, I grew up with that kind of in the background. And I also knew my parents had grown up in a very poor country. They would tell me all the time about how lucky we were to be born in the U.S. and have all these opportunities that most kids who didn't, um, you know, draw this like winning ticket and a birth lottery, you know, we, we, we got all these all these chances. And so it didn't really hit home for me until I, I went and spent time living in a very poor community. Um, I got a scholarship from, of all places, a tobacco company when I was in, in high school. Right. Um, and I felt weird about using big tobacco money for college, so I used it to go and do volunteer work. 
And it was kind of a whim. I mean, I, I definitely cared about community service and social justice, but I never expected that I would go and spend six months living in a village in Africa. It just kind of happened. I graduated the semester early and then went off to go do this service work. And when I got to Ghana, I was shocked because I had thought that people were poor because they weren't willing to maybe work hard enough or they didn't have the right educational background. Um, and of course, I got there and I was schooled by my students who could name U.S. senators who were incredibly articulate. They spoke the Queen's English. I taught at a school for blind kids in you know one of the poorest countries in the world. And I was shocked at how at how motivated everyone there was not only to work, but to learn. And so I realized that we've, we've all internalized a myth about poverty, which is that, um, that people who are living in poverty are somehow not trying hard enough, which is completely uh, just, just false. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so I, I discovered that I spent a lot of time living with and talking to people who made less than $2 a day and understanding what their lives were like. And it's, it's really astounding for most of us to imagine how, how billions of people survive at this income level. It means constant and avoidable suffering that really should no longer have a place in the world in, in the modern era. Yeah, no. And, and I think the point that you're highlighting there is the fact that you believe that a lot of people, especially in the West, have a shallow idea of what poverty truly is. You know, um, you touched on it there. We both come from former British colonies where, you know, a lot of us speak English. You know, when I, when I first came here to America, a lot of people were surprised by the fact that um, I spoke English so well. In fact, people ask me, why is your English so good? <laughs> you know, uh, do you, do, don't you live in huts? Like they would make the Lion King noise because they thought that that, you know, basically the perception of Africa as a continent uh, was one giant country where people didn't have access to resources. So, I, you know, that concept of people not understanding that it is very possible to be somewhat educated, have a large youth population, and still be dramatically unemployed. Um, and, I, I, you know, I'm saying all this to say, how do you explain this to the West? How do you explain this to people that, hey, look, education is there. It's just a matter of providing opportunities. How, how does that concept translate to the West so that they are willing to help? That's a great question, and I, I'm so glad you brought up Nigeria because I think in many ways it's similar to, to India, where my parents grew up, and also similar to, to Ghana, where I had done teaching, and to Kenya and Uganda, where I, I work now with Samasaurus. Um, and I think the, the primary um, you know, commonalities across all of these post-colonial countries is that they have strong education systems. Um, colonialism was, was terrible in many ways, but um, one of the upside of the British colonial system was a strong system of English medium schools that have enabled young people in these countries to really be competitive globally as, as knowledge workers. And um, it's interesting because when my parents left India in the late seventies, they were told very similar things. I remember my, my mom told me she arrived in Buffalo in 1978 because my dad had an engineering job there and people were like, did you grow up with monkeys living in huts? And you know, my exactly. mom has a degree in English <laughs> literature. She she can recite like like sonnets, you know, from Shakespeare. Um, she's one of the most articulate people I've I've ever met. And um, and English is is of course one of India's official languages, uh, much as it is in Nigeria or Ghana or Kenya or Uganda. So. Um, I think that we've internalized this myth about low-income people, and I think it's it's a patronizing myth. And the myth is that they um, 
you know, at worst deserve it because they're not trying hard enough to not be poor, which again is like patently false. If you spend any time (laughs) understanding what life is like for someone on under $2 a day, most of them are working full-time jobs and still unable to make ends meet. And the second myth is that, um, that these people need help and handouts and they need our, you know, they need our good grace um, before they can do anything for themselves, which is also, I think, equally patronizing and false. Um, because what most people around the world want is the same thing you and I want. They want a chance to uplift themselves, to earn enough money to cover their family expenses and live a decent life and afford the basic, you know, the basic necessities, clean water, adequate sanitation, okay, healthcare. <laughs> um, and, and these things really are entirely possible to deliver to everyone in the world in 2017. Yeah. This is not rocket science. Now, and we're going to talk about that more. I, I'm, I want to put a pin on this, but this point that you just brought up is the fact that we have more in common than we think. I was doing, so I, I run a diversity and inclusion company and sometimes I go into companies to consult and we were doing this concept on a conscious bias. And a gentleman there, he said he went on a mission trip. And um, a bias he hadn't dealt with was the fact that he had this air of superiority uh, because he was coming to help, right? And then when he heard, you know, through translators that, hey, you know, hey, I just want to send my kid to school, right? <laughs> I just want them to be able to survive. He just, he just felt so ashamed of himself because at that moment, he suddenly realizes, like, <laughs> they want the same thing I want. Like, this idea of me coming to just save random structured unstructured organizations like this mom here just wants to send her son to school and be able to provide for the family and at that moment i think those humanized moments you said you went on a trip and you sort of got schooled those are those type of things that that really show that i mean come on we a lot of us want the same things and given the climate of the world today we just had the unfortunate incident in in uh las vegas and and what's been going on with the natural disasters and seeing how that can wipe away a country's resources um, uh, you know, my country, Nigeria, and, and several countries in the world. I think it's important that your book is coming around this time to just sort of remind people that, hey, we as humanity can do much more together. And especially as entrepreneurs, we can provide all these resources there. So I just wanted to say that, uh, before we moved on. Um, so another thing that is interesting with your story is, is how you got started. Because I believe you, were you working in another company before Sama? I was I was a management consultant for a firm uh, called Katzenbach Partners that got acquired by um, Booz and Company, but basically like a strategy consulting firm in New York. Absolutely. Now, and I live in New York now, and I know that I know definitely of the consulting world and that company. But walk me through the I, the conception of Sama when you had that idea, and then when you decided to just basically say, you know what, I'm quitting my job and I'm going to do this full time. So I, I had the idea for Sama. So I'd been thinking about job creation um, as a solution to poverty for a while because I had um, spent that time in Ghana and then I decided I would study international development and poverty reduction in, in college as an undergrad. So worked on that and spent a lot of time talking to poor people. I think one of the things we forget to do when we're especially in philanthropy and, and international aid is to spend time with our customers, and our customers are the people we're trying to help, right? So I tried to spend as much time as I could understanding what life is like for someone living at on less than two or three dollars a day, um, how they make their decisions about about spending, and how they how they make ends meet. 
And as I spent more time researching this as an undergrad, and then I, I worked briefly at the World Bank, I realized that we kind of have it all wrong. We're investing in basically different versions of an aid model that started quite a long time ago and is now not so relevant. And our current era of international aid started after World War II in America's effort to rebuild Europe. And a lot of it was self-interested. It was America's effort also to find markets for American exports. So we sent food aid to Europe, and then that mushroomed into sending food aid to post-colonial, newly independent countries in sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America and Asia. And um, and what I what dawned on me over my years studying this is how much that model no longer served the poor, perhaps never really served the poor, to be honest. And so in 2005, I met Tom Friedman, I read The World is Flat, and I thought to myself, maybe digital work could be a really interesting answer. Here's this powerful new trend. Um, computers and internet infrastructure, is, um, are, they're popping up all over the world. And for the first time, it's possible for a bright young person in Nigeria or Ghana who could have access to a computer to theoretically do work for a company around the world. And what's exciting about that is that it frees labor from the constraint of geography. Mm. So it doesn't, it no longer means that your fate has to be dictated by where you happen to be born, which is so arbitrary, right? Like yeah. I could just as easily have been born in a slum in, in India, in which case I would be living on under $2 a day with, with zero opportunity. So theoretically, the internet circumvents that and creates this powerful new way for us to connect educated and talented people with decent living wage jobs, even without them moving. Yeah. And that theoretically is an extremely powerful force, arguably the most powerful force in, in human history to unlock, I think, the, the most important natural resource, which is the brain power at the bottom of the pyramid. Yeah. So it dawned on me that this was the case. I was working as a consultant. I knew that I wanted to work on poverty reduction, but I had become so jaded by what I'd seen of the aid world that I didn't want to go into that field. And that's why I had started consulting. I thought maybe I'll learn about business and I'll start a business that could employ lots of low-income people. And um, I read the, Tom Friedman's book. I actually met him at a conference. And I was in India consulting for a large outsourcing company when I met a young man who was commuting into the company from Bharati, which is South Asia's largest slum. It's where Slumdog Millionaire was filmed. And the idea that a person could commute to this fancy call center from one of the worst slums in the world where literally there are like open sewers outside and cholera outbreaks and just horrific conditions. It like blew my mind that that was possible that, um, that we could see such a dramatic like reversal of fate in the same generation <laughs> because of digital work. And so I started to learn more about this new industry of outsourcing work of like, third-party companies doing work for um, for Western businesses, right, often overseas. And what struck me is that this could be a very powerful way to create jobs, not just among middle-class people in India and the Philippines, where most of those jobs go today, but actually to poor people. And I thought if we could break down work into smaller chunks so that we could easily train someone who doesn't have a lot of experience to do the work, then um, that's the real win. That's how we impact dramatically impact um, uh, poverty. And so that idea dawned on me and I quit my job um, eventually. 
and started working on some resource full time. I, I entered a business plan into a couple of different competitions for social enterprise. And, uh, and that's how it started. Um, a few things to unpack there. So you, you're, you basically took an outsourcing model and you turned it into a social enterprise. Is that correct? Is that sounds like that's what you did. That's right. Wow. That's right. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And, um, and I, I was really inspired. I mean, I think the leader in this category is Muhammad Yunus. I was really inspired by the work he'd done at Grameen Bank and especially um, the work that he'd done to take the banking model, which never served the poor, in fact, often preyed upon the poor, and flip it on its head and say, look, you know, if we can give big loans to rich people, why can't we give small loans to people who don't have much money who also need access to finance? So he totally like smashed a hammer into the traditional way of thinking about, about finance and banking, which is that it's inefficient to provide small loans to low-income people. Maybe they won't pay it back. And he showed that actually poor women, women living on $2 a day, pay back their loans with more frequency um, and more reliably than a lot of wealthier people. And, and I wanted to do with banking, um, or I wanted to do with, with outsourcing what Muhammad Yunus has, had done with banking. He converted banking into a microfinance model, and I wanted to convert outsourcing into a micro work model. Wow! Wow! No, that's. That, I mean, I love. I love all this. These type of stories because you basically. A lot of times, we can just take models that work in other industries, and we can apply that to you know industries that we feel like uh, need help, and it, it really, really does work. Now, there are a few things here. You also said you know you had a few competitions. You sort of rushed through that, and, and then you talked about you quit your job, but. Let's go through that. You quit the job. You and I know that you've said in the past that you don't come from a wealthy family, right? And you were paying off student loans, right? So this is this is not just any drastic. This is not just like any decision that you didn't take some thought into. But you knew that, and you decided. Now I'm still going to do this. It's something I still want to do, and I'm going to do it. The first question there is why, and then the second one is the competition you entered. I think it was it was in Amsterdam, right? You you got the first runner-up prize. Um, and maybe you got $25,000. I think that's what you, you won. Um, how did those two moments connect to leading you to quit your job? Um, that's such a great question. It was, uh, it was really tough to, um, <laughs> to decide to do that. And I still sometimes wonder, um, you know, it, should I have worked at like Facebook or something for a couple of years <laughs> or tried to, tried to work for, um, you know, for one of these tech firms? But I couldn't help it. And once I, once I stumbled into this idea, um, I was kind of on a mission and it was really tough. I, I had three jobs in college. As you mentioned, I didn't come from a wealthy background. A lot of people assume I was just interviewed yesterday and someone was like, Oh, you have a very, you know, fancy kind of background going to Harvard. I mean, I didn't, I can't tell you how not fancy my childhood was. Mm-hmm. We had no money. I worked, um, I've worked multiple jobs since I was like 14 to have an allowance. Um, my parents really couldn't afford much. And I, I had never even visited college campuses before I decided to go to Harvard. I just went because I had the best financial aid package there. So I was hardly like the trust fund kid doing social mission work. And for me, it was, it was really scary because I had no nest egg. Um, still my parents, you know, they don't own a home. Um, I'm kind of, I've been on my own for a really long time. And I think um, when you, maybe one of the ways you know what you're meant to do is that you will do it no matter what. Like you'll do it even in the face of uh, overwhelming odds against you. And often when it's totally irrational and everyone sane around you is telling you that you're kind of crazy. And for me, I think maybe one of the benefits of coming from 
no money at home is that I always knew that I could work. Like worst case scenario, I I was a I babysat a ton when I was in middle school and made a lot of money running a little babysitting business for the neighborhood. And then I worked as a legal secretary. I worked as a tutor. I worked as a, an usher at a theater. I mean, I did every job you could imagine. Wow. And that builds resilience because you realize like, okay, worst case scenario, I can always make money doing one of these other things and I'm not going to be homeless. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I also like, I, you know, I think having immigrant parents, creates a sense of hustle if your parents had to hustle and your parents also came here with nothing and you know I was a first generation American so um, I think it does build resiliency and I I actually think now that's one of the qualities I'm most grateful for because I think it really um, it's really necessary if you're launching a company to have that to have that ability to keep going when maybe other people might quit yeah. Maybe a sane person might quit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, you, you're so right with the the immigrant hustle because you know, I mean, I I'm not even an immigrant. I came here as an international student, um, so my options were very limited because I needed one type of visa, primarily an H1B visa. And then I, um, you know, I quit the job after a near death experience, and I decided to move here. And everybody, my parents included, thought I was crazy. Like. We did not send you to, to America to, to, to do all these things. Is this why you're wasting our money? So, you know, they had all those comments to me where they, they would call me and they would say all these crazy things. But when you said the immigrant mentality, it was something that I just tapped into. It was like, you know what? This is, I, I just feel like. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Lagos, Nigeria is such a hustle mentality. I feel like you'll be able to make something good out of something if you do what you truly love, no matter what the, the the downs that come with that. And it sounds like you did that as well because obviously it led you to Amsterdam. You got $25,000. That's hardly enough to start a business, but then you sort of use that to lead you to basically going full-time into Sama. So I, I used that. I had that. Uh, it was actually check i'm looking at it in my office right now um huh. at the time i called the business market for change and they gave me one of those big checks i was um i was a runner-up i wasn't the first price winner so that enabled me to quit my job and then the next thing i did was enter more business plan competitions and i also placed second at the stanford social enterprise challenge um a few months later in early 2009 and got another like i don't know like twelve thousand dollars wow. <laughs> and Together, I kind of cobbled that um, together and then launched the company in September um, of 2008. And that's how, um, that's kind of how it began. And it was tough. I mean, I remember I was tutoring on the side to make money then. And um, 
doing various other like Craigslist odd, odd jobs, which was crazy. I'd come from like a management consulting background where I had like a corporate Amex card and a nice apartment in Manhattan and like flew business class and stuff to like literally like sleeping in this tiny room in Mountain View that I found on Craigslist. And um, at one point, like sleeping on my ex's futon, who remains a good friend and, you know, one of those people in my life who really helped make my business happen. But it was it was hard in those early days. And I guess what convinced me to keep going and, and really um, keep building the Sama Source was this feeling that nobody else was doing it. If I didn't, who would? And that there was just this incredible opportunity with East Africa getting internet infrastructure to grow something, you know, potentially very big that could help millions of people one day. And um, I just, I so believed in it. And I think the best evidence for an entrepreneur that your business is working is if you can break it down to the unit level, like in our case, it was by project. I had won a contract. I convinced this entrepreneur in San Francisco who were in Palo Alto, who I'd known, who had a, a project that I knew I could I could potentially win. I convinced him and broke him down over weeks of, of pleading to give us this deal. And he gave us a $30,000 contract to do data entry. And I won the business because we didn't even at that point have like a facility to do the work in. But I won the business telling him, look, I will personally do all of the quality assurance. I will review every page wow. of these transcripts and you have my word, they'll be perfect. Like, and if they're not perfect, it'll be my fault, not the workers. And so he's like, okay, if you're willing to do that, I'll give you the contract. And then once we had the contract, I had a partner in Nairobi um, who had an internet cafe. He had a couple computers there. And I convinced him, I was like, look, you know, you hire people to do this work from your internet cafe and I will win the contracts. And that's how we got started. So he went from four computers to like 50 computers the following year, eventually um, employing hundreds of people um, at this facility in Nairobi and um, being our earliest and and strongest partner. And eventually um, we decided to build our own facility in Kenya where we now employ, um, we have about 1,300 workers in total we employ 900 in our office in in Nairobi, and yeah, um, and the business is now is now profitable. That's 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 incredible. That's an incredible story. And we're talking to Lila Johnny here, she's the founder of both Sama and Luxme. That's correct, Luxme. Sama Source that's and right. Luxme. And Sama. Before we go to Luxme and then the book, Sama is the root word for equality in many languages. Is that correct? How did you even come up with that name? I've been looking at different names. I really love Sanskrit names. Um, there's something for me that ties to my own personal origin story. Um, my mom is half Belgian and half Indian, and my father's Indian. And I've I've always felt this connection to the sort of language and arts and spirituality of, of their homeland. And I love Sanskrit names. And so um, my own last name means people in Sanskrit, Jana. Um, and I had thought... Maybe I'll find a name there. So I started just poking around. I'm a big uh, yogi, and the concept of balance um, is really interesting to me. Those who are yogis listening to the show know that sama means balance. So um, it just was a great word. And as I started testing it with people from other um, regions, people told me, oh, it means sky in Arabic. Um, in Indonesian, it has a great meaning. There's, it's, it's just a generally sort of positive, good word in a lot of cultures. Easy to say and easy to remember. Gotcha, gotcha. All right. Well, let's talk about Luxme, and then we'll go into give work. What what is um? How did you move from Sama Source, um, to Luxme? So I had been working and growing Sama for about seven years, six years. Um, 
before I had the idea for Luxme. And basically what I what I built with Samosource is a what we built with Samosource, it's now a team and I um, can't take credit for most of our success. Um, what we built was a really interesting um, what we call give work model. So our core philosophy is we can best address the problem of poverty by buying things directly and paying living wages, um, buying things from low-income people. And the best way to help them is not to give them a handout, but to give them work and, and purchase from them on a level playing field. So that's the core idea, this give work idea. And Samasource is a B2B company. We sell to large technology enterprises that need data services. So we, a lot of our work now is doing things like image tagging, image annotation, and various other services for um, computer vision teams building the next technologies in self-driving cars or smart hardware. Um, but it dawned on me that this give work model could be really powerful for a consumer brand as well. And I kept meeting people who would say, oh, how can I help Samasource? I don't actually have a data project, but I love what you're doing. Is there any way that we could, like, you know, buy something from Samasource? And, and consumers really can't buy anything from Samasource. And so I thought to myself, you know, this is an interesting opportunity. What if we could build a give work consumer brand? And at the, around the same time, I, I stumbled into an incredible ingredient um, called Nilotica. It's an heirloom variety of shea butter. So it's a separate subspecies, and it only grows wild at the source of the Nile River in East Africa. So it's got different chemical properties than West African shea. It's really um, a unique ingredient, and it works incredibly well for um, hydrating skin and as a wrinkle-reducing ingredient. So I started using it myself, and I'd heard about it because women in northern Uganda are obsessed with it. They start massaging it on their babies from, like, days old. It's one of the reasons people say that, um, that the women of northern Uganda have such perfect skin. So I started using it, fell in love with it, and thought to myself, wow, this is such a powerful um, ingredient. Why has nobody marketed this as a luxury product before? Because there's really, like, nothing more luxurious than, um, than an ingredient that not only makes you more beautiful, but makes the world more beautiful in the way that it's made. Oh. And, um, and that's how it kind of... That's how it started. So I decided to start the company. I gave um, a third of my personal equity to Samasource and um, got the blessing of my board, raised venture capital, and kicked off last year. We launched in every Sephora store as the first fair trade and organic brand at Sephora nationwide. Um, And now I sell it on QVC um, at Sephora. We sell it directly on our website at lxmi.com. And it's um, we've developed a, um, a small line of products around this core ingredient. We have a few more launching very soon. But the real idea is to build a new kind of luxury company that's based on beauty for humanity as opposed to just beauty for for ourselves. Now this is this is uh, this is amazing, and I love I love the work that you do. Uh, and the reason why I love what you do is that you come from such a a pure place of just trying to help because you there's this mindset that you have that I, I share with uh, with you on is this concept that you don't have to accept the world for what it is you can mold it into what you think it could be. and the reason why I love what you do is that you are doing that with business you know a lot of times people have this idea of business and um, sort of help and poverty as this things that can't coexist uh, and you somehow managed to use the power of entrepreneurship to, some, to tackle some of the world's problems so why do you have that mindset? You know, it's very easy for people to, to be negative. You know, the violence, the inequality, and the injustice that exists right now, it almost feels insurmountable. But why do you have this 
relentless amount of hope? Um, that's such an interesting question. I, uh, my, my grandmother was a Belgian woman who, um, in 1948 decided to hitchhike around the world after, um, after World War II, um, starting with $5 with a group of students. And so, um, she decided to do that and, um, went overland for four years through Southern Europe, North Africa, the Middle East, um, met my grandfather in Calcutta in India, and then made it all the way overland back to Paris, um, again, starting with $5. And the idea that, um, that she could do that at that time and not only emerge unscathed, but actually have this tremendous experience. She wrote a book about it, which I found on French eBay, which I translated it. It's a really crazy story, but it's a beautiful story of how, um, how we should, as she would always say, trust the world. She always had this like very optimistic sense of, of what's possible and, um, and also of what other people's intentions are. And she would always tell us that as kids that, you know, you can choose to be afraid and see the worst in people, or you can choose to be positive and see the best in people and, um, and realize that ultimately people around the world want the same things. So she had this incredible philosophy and I think this gift for connecting people and for, for being a global citizen and that was always part of my upbringing. And I think if you feel fundamentally that everyone has roughly the same capabilities and the same desires and the same talents, and then you also see extreme poverty and, again, avoidable suffering, it's really hard to reconcile those two things, right? Like, if we do live in a world where talent is equally distributed, then why is a kid in Ghana dying of malaria at age five because her parents can't afford a five dollar malaria treatment like that should not ever happen on our watch right it's like an entirely preventable and avoidable situation so the only explanation for that is that we've designed really bad inadequate systems to cater to the human needs of the worst off people and i felt this like moral compulsion to do something about it and once you once you see that kind of stuff you you can't unsee it sometimes I wish I could have a different career that would be like a little bit easier but um but once you've been affected by that it's it's really hard to ever forget it and I think um I think for me it just became this like lifelong mission so now that we've been able to build a company around it and, and it's less kind of desperate and I have a salary and I'm able to afford a home and and not worry about where my next meal is going to come from. It's a little less stressful. And now that I have this perspective, I can't imagine doing anything else. And most of the people who work at Samosource and Luxme um, have the same kind of passion and um, commitment to what they're doing. It really is like a gift to be able to wake up every morning and do something that you feel is totally in line with your deepest values. Yeah. No, I love that. I admire that. And I share that mindset. And I think, uh, you know, it's it's easier to, to give up. It's easier to give into the idea that we're all doomed. But, it, you know, it's harder to, to walk through the wilderness, as uh, Brene Brown would say, and basically say, hey, we're going to be, you know, vulnerable and we're, we're going to basically share these moments, but we're going to work through this pain in order for us to, to get to the good stuff. And obviously, all this has worked uh, and culminated in your upcoming book, which is just out, Give Work, Reversing Poverty One Job at a Time. Why now, Lila? I'm sure you've you've had offers before to write. Um, you, you said your mom could recite sonnets. You know, you come from a background where you know um, English and and uh, and just the whole idea of uh, literature is probably something that you've 
you sort of um, navigate, naturally gravitate towards. But why now? Why do you feel like your book needed to come out now? Um, it was kind of a series of coincidences. I, I met my agent who had gone to college with us, and she um, she was really lovely. And she's like, look, you know, now's a good time because you we just reached profitability at Source last year, which really, I think, um, allows us to tell the story because it can, it can scale a lot bigger now. Um, and I think the other piece of it was I, I really wanted more people to embrace this concept of giving work. And I feel like we've been... We've been pursuing one solution to poverty reduction for a long time that's really not working that well. And the faster we can shift that investment into enterprises that give work and this new category of social business, the faster we can solve these problems. Like I don't I don't want to travel to developing countries or even to parts of America and see people living in avoidable suffering. I want that to be over within my lifetime. And so I feel like there's this urgency to spreading the word. Um, there's also a really unprecedented, unprecedented amount of money being spent by companies, by large corporations on goods and services that for the first time can now be deployed to um, to spending on vendors like Samasource that give work and address poverty at the root in the supply chain. And that's really like one of the most powerful, I think, um, uh, aspects of the book as I talk about how the real win is for big companies to spend money on goods and services that um, that would otherwise go to more traditional vendors and not create a social impact. Yeah, no, it's good. It's good, and people can find his book on anywhere books are sold, right? Or Amazon, bookshelves everywhere. That's right. Uh, anywhere books are sold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll do, it is funny. <laughs> give work. At givework.org, um, where they can also learn more information about the <laughs> givework.org, uh, givework.org, uh, <laughs> Barnes and Nobles. Um, if Borders is still around, I'm sure it's there. It's on Amazon as well, but we'll put the links to in the show notes to to givework.org and even the Amazon link. Um, but you know, this that, I've really really enjoyed talking to you. I know we're getting ready to close, uh, but before I, I ask sort of the culminating question here is. There's something that happens right now. I, I explained to you, and you already know this, We this recent string of disasters we've had, natural and um, human-based, human-caused. There's this idea of metrics around health, like donate, 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 donate. And a lot of people have this jaded bias against, well, I don't really know what the effects are doing. Where do you come into into this? You know, I know you're you're sort of in both worlds, but you're in social enterprise. How do you measure, track, um, all these things to make sure that your efforts are effective? So um, that's a, such a good question, and anyone who's curious can look at our impact methodology at Samasource. If you go to samasource.org/impact, we actually produce um, quarterly impact reports in many, many different. Um, we look at many different indicators: what food people are eating, how um, how their housing situation is changing, what they're investing in, and and the best way to track impact, of course, is to do is to do surveys and workers and understand how that money is relating to material changes in their lives. So um, so we track that. We also do these quarterly impact calls, which I think are kind of cool. They're they're modeled after quarterly uh, earnings calls at companies. So we report out on our impact every quarter with a live. Um, video call that anyone can um, can see. We, we put them on Facebook Live and Google Hangouts. 
and people can submit questions. And so we, we really try to be as transparent as possible. And then what's happening in our space, which is really exciting, is we're starting to see um, third-party auditing now um, of impact. So just like nonprofits every year are undergo a financial audit to make sure that they're doing what they say they're going to do, and what's now really exciting is that you can do that for social impact as well. So we have a third-party group of development economists that analyze all of our impact data and published a report, which we publish on our website. Um, and I think that is increasingly important. I think every social mission organization should have an impact audit and should publish that audit and, and use it to learn how to be more effective in, in whatever their theory of change is. Mm -hmm. The nice thing about SAM is we have a pretty clear metric of success, which is moving people out of the poverty or out of poverty and so it's pretty easy to measure that we look at the <laughs> income they made before sama which is on average about two dollars and twenty cents a day yeah and after sama we move them to over eight dollars a day and they stay at that income level um um long after they leave us which is of course really um really helpful so yeah yeah and and you know nomads and everyone listening right now it's you know the idea of going from two dollars to eight dollars is astronomical i'm you know my country nigeria is you know the has largest gdp in africa but also at the same time the largest amount of people living in abject poverty and abject poverty a lot of times is described as people that that uh, you know barely make you know one less than two dollars a day you know we have uh, last i checked it was 86 million uh people living in abject poverty a day so you can imagine how going from two dollars to eight dollars can actually affect one and standard of living is always varied in different parts of the world. So thank you for, for sharing. This, is, this has been an amazing pleasure. Um, I would be remiss if I did not ask you my mission statement. It is the reason I do everything I do. And it's the reason why um, I feel like I was called here on earth. And my mission statement is use your difference to make a difference. So, Lila, how do you use your difference to make a difference? Um, I guess I use my difference to... to to give work, um, to give work and reverse poverty through the mechanism of the market. Yeah, yeah. Literally the title of a book, Give Work, Reversing <laughs> Poverty, One Job at a Time. And she uses a difference to give work. And her businesses also give work. So make sure you check that out. Um, it's been a true pleasure. I will put everything in the show notes. This has been um, an education in many ways. Uh, and I've loved your honesty and you just talking about your entrepreneurship story and the possibilities that we all have uh, within ourselves to inspire change and uh, really tap into uh, the beautiful world that we don't get to celebrate. It was such a pleasure talking to you, and um, thanks so much for sharing our story. Yeah, <laughs> pleasure's mine. Till the next week, ladies and gentlemen, use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're 
so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 